today. You must be in a good mood today. You're not allowed to be in a bad mood today. Because today, for those who weren't here, we just celebrated. Four new members of the church were baptized this morning, two of whom were just up on stage right now. And I was telling them after everyone's going to see their shining faces like that, I expect the music team, everyone wants to join the music team now, okay? Because you see the fruit of the music team right here. Today's a great day. Today's really, really a great day and those beautiful songs that we just sang. And it's also a great day because we are wrapping up our series on You Are What You Eat. And today is the series finale, part six. As you're going to see, we're going to talk about is the guardian of biblical truth. Now, let's take a step back. Hopefully over the past few weeks, all right, the past five weeks, we've learned a lot about what the role of the Bible was meant to be in our lives. All right, and I hope that over the past few weeks, that even if you haven't gotten there fully, at least you have realized that you need to invest more in the Word of God. And the Word of God, that oftentimes those times of confusion in our lives can be traced back to no investment in the Word of God. And those times of weakness in our lives trace back to no investment in the Word of God. And those times where our souls are malnourished trace back to not enough investment in the Word of God. And I hope that by now you've seen the importance of the Word of God in your life and you've realized that you need to make a concerted effort to integrate the Word of God into your life. But there's one kind of underlying assumption I have made from the beginning of this series which we haven't really addressed. And really, this question I'm about to ask you right now, the entire series hinges on this one question. And that question is this. I said the importance of reading the Bible. And I said the importance of investing in the Bible. And we wanted to memorize the Bible. And we wanted to um, read and we wanted to study the Bible. We wanted to get more into our Bible, more into our Bible. Well, the question is, what if I'm not reading the Bible in the right way? There's a right way to read the Bible and a wrong way, right? Like last week I made the statement that there's only one way to interpret a verse correctly. Right? Remember I said that last week? So what happens if I'm reading and I'm investing in the Bible, but I'm reading it the wrong way? Like, for example, someone in jail. And he's in jail for whatever crime he committed. And he comes across John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, a verse that we memorized. Y'all remember John 8? John 8, 32 says what? Who remembers what our memory verse? John 8, 32. It says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free or make you free. So what happens if I read that verse and I'm in jail and I say, look, Jesus promised I'm going to be free from jail. Is that the correct interpretation of that verse? That is not the correct interpretation of that verse. You may want it to be the correct interpretation of that verse, but it is not. Someone who reads... Someone who has diabetes or another kind of disease. And reads 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it says, look, I have diabetes. I confess my sin. The diabetes should go away. Is that a correct interpretation of that verse? No. Not at all. Not even close. It isn't enough to just read the Bible. We have to read it the right way. And if you read and read and read and read and read the wrong way, you're actually not doing any good for yourself. You're actually doing yourself a lot of harm. That guy who's convinced that God, even though I ran a bazillion red lights and I drive 100 miles an hour in school zones, 
honking at cops while I'm driving by and littering on their cars as I drive by. And I got all these tickets and the one who says, no, I believe that all things are possible to him who believes. And that goes to courts believing he's going to get off. That one should not read the Bible anymore if that's how he's going to read it. Because all he's doing is a disservice to himself and anyone else around him. It's not enough to read the Bible. We have to make sure we read the Bible the right way. Scripture says it this way. I showed you this verse last week. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I told you all last week that every passage in Scripture has one correct meaning. Now you say, hey, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible mean something different to everyone? No. One meaning, many applications. One meaning, many applications. The meaning is based on the speaker. As I am speaking, I am saying a sentence. I mean one thing by it. You may apply it differently. Okay? If you're, whatever your circumstances in life, you may apply the truth differently, but I have one meaning because the meaning is based on the speaker. The application is based on the hearer. So every verse of scripture has a correct meaning. And we must make sure that we read the Bible properly or not. If not, it's all not worth it. So how do I know if I'm reading it properly? Hold that thought for one second. Let me ask you a different question. Here we live in the United States of America. And everything we do in the United States of America, all of our laws, all of our rules, everything we do here is based on a document. And what's that document? Constitution of the United States of America. We the people, eh, whatever it says, okay? We the people, and it goes on. And this one document spells out everything that we do in this country. And anytime someone wants to introduce a new rule, can you add new rules? Yes, but it must pass a certain criteria. What's that criteria? It must be constitutional. And then you have to, someone says, I want to do this law. The first thing you say, is it constitutional or not constitutional? And it's very rarely black and white, right? Like it's very rarely black and white. It's very rarely that this is constitutional or this isn't. Usually it is, you'll have two people defending their points. Like for example, I'm not talking politics, so I'm not making a statement. Look at the issue of abortion. You have two people look at the same constitution and one tell you gives the right for abortion for women to do what they want. Another one look at it from the other side say, this document gives the right to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Both argue. Differing points, same document. Marriage. Everyone will use the same document of marriage, one to say, one man, one woman, one to say, people can do as they please. I'm not making any statements. I'm just telling you how it works. So what happens in that situation? What happens in that situation? You got two people arguing the exact opposite point of view, and each one saying it's constitutional. What do they do? How do we solve this problem? Supreme Court. There's a branch of the government called the Supreme Court, and it's their job to answer the question, is it constitutional or not constitutional? Not every man for himself, not every man say, I think abortion is constitutional, so I'm going to do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way, son. If the government of the United States of America, if the Supreme Court says it's not constitutional, then you can't do it. And one who says that I want to do this, no, no, it's whatever the Supreme Court says, we abide by that because we live in a civilization with rules and order. If you didn't have the Supreme Court of the United States of America to interpret the Constitution, what would you have? You'd have anarchy. 
to have every man for himself doing whatever it is that they want to do. Y'all agree with me? Y'all agree. We need the Supreme Court. We need a body of people, and the body of people's job is not to give their opinion what's their job. Their job is to go back as much as they can into the mindset of those who wrote the document and understand the original meaning, because the, those who wrote it had one meaning when they wrote it, and to understand that meaning and to apply that into whatever circumstance is in today. Agree? Anybody disagree with me so far? I, I, I passed civics class okay? Okay. Christianity has a constitution too. And the constitution in Christianity is called the Bible. And there's a lot of parallels to what the constitution is to America, what the Bible is to Christianity. Why? Because you here you have two documents, constitution and Bible, each of them written many, many, many years ago. Each of them containing the principles by the founding fathers, either of the country or the, or the, or the faith, the founding fathers wrote down the principles that should govern life inside the country or inside the faith. The Constitution was written about 300 years ago, three, 400 years ago. And you see how much debate is there around that. Why? Because it was written a long time ago in a different, like, culture, in a different time, in a different era. So how do we take this and apply it in 2014? The Bible was not written 300 years ago. How long ago was the Bible written? The newest book of the Bible, the newest, was written 2,000 years ago. Not in a same country just a few hundred years ago. Different country across the world. Completely different culture. And on top of that, written in a different language. Actually written in three different languages. Then none of them is English. So what happens if you have two Christians who read the same constitution, I mean the same Bible, and have a different interpretation on a passage? You want to know what happens? The World Christian Encyclopedia says that today there are over 38,000 Christian denominations. Do y'all know what 38,000 means? 38,000. 38,000 people who all say we have the same constitution. Not only that, they say we have the same president and the exact same constitution. But we have 38,000 different interpretations of that constitution. Why? How? How can that be? Like, let's be logic right now. How can that be? How can it be that one king and one constitution, which nobody disagrees on, none of those 38,000 disagree. I'm not talking about faiths that don't believe in the Bible. I'm not talking about any of those. I'm talking about those Christian denominations that say, we believe that Jesus is the king, and we believe that the Bible is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe it. How can it be that you have 38,000 different interpretations of it? What are you missing in Christianity that you have in America? You're missing the Supreme Court. There's someone to play the role of the Supreme Court. That's why I see the church fathers, they were smart. That's why they said, that's why the apostles said what St. Peter said, that no prophecy of Scripture was of any private interpretation. Because they knew that if you leave it to everyone to determine the meaning on their own, then you're going to end up with chaos and anarchy all around. We need a body outside of ourselves where we can take these discussions to. If you look in the Bible, Acts chapter 8 is a good passage of one time where someone who was reading the Bible, all right, and he ran into, he was an Ethiopian eunuch, 
and he was reading the scripture, and he had this dialogue with Philip. Look what it says. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said to him, do you understand what you were reading? And the Ethiopian said, very wise statement. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? A very wise statement. How am I supposed to understand this unless someone guides me? Like, let's be honest. A lot of us, like I told y'all before, a lot of stuff we read, we don't understand what it means. And we like to say, and a lot of times what we do is we make up a meaning because we don't want to say, I don't know what it means. But let's be honest. There's a lot of things that we read that doesn't make sense to us. Like Christianity is not the most simplest and straightforward thing when you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament trying to connect it all together. The apostles themselves made mistakes. One time in the New Testament, Peter. Peter. Like Peter was up there. They said, uh, those Gentiles want to join. And he said, no, no, no. Gentiles can't become Christians. They have to become circumcised. Peter, how you say that, Peter? Like you were the closest one to Christ. Like Peter, what happened to you? How could you say such a mistake? And they, he made a mistake. But luckily, Peter and all the apostles, he wasn't the only one who made a mistake. Luckily, all of them, they didn't go off on their own and Peter say, no, I'm gonna start my own thing and you over there, Paul, and I'm over here. They didn't do like that. That wasn't the way the time was at the time. What Peter did and Paul and Silas, and Barnabas, and John, and Mark, they came together to the body of Christ, to the church. And they said, we have an issue. You interpret scripture this way, we interpret scripture this way. We're not leaving this room till we figure out the correct interpretation of what Jesus meant, of what Jesus said. Not what you think, not what I think, not what you want, not what I want. What? was meant by the founding fathers, by Jesus himself, when this verse was written or given to us. We're going to talk about a word today, the guardian of our faith, the supreme court of our faith. And I'm going to hesitate to say it, okay, because it's kind of a bad word in a lot of churches. Okay, so I'm going to say it, and then I'll wash my mouth out with soap afterwards. Okay, we're going to talk about today is something called tradition. Holy tradition. Sacred tradition. We okay so far? No one threw the shoe at me? Okay, good. Tradition is a bad word in a lot of places. And let me start off by saying I understand why. And the reason why tradition, a lot of people, as soon as they hear the word tradition, they, you know whose fault it is? That people don't like the word tradition? Whose fault is it? It's my fault. And it's your fault. It's us Christians' fault. Because we abuse it. And many Christians and many churches have abused the word tradition, so that's caused many people to have a negative reaction to tradition. So I understand. I don't want anyone to think they're being judged here today. I understand. I say tradition and all these images of Pharisees and, and, and indulgences, okay, and, and all these like pharisaical, hypocritical things come to mind. I totally understand. But what we want to do today is we want to take a biblical honest, unbiased look at this concept of tradition. And what I'm going to show you today, if you're coming in with the, no, 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 I'm against this tradition thing. I want to show you that sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And tradition is a good example. You, let's say someone has bad childhood memories. All right, and every time they drive by their home, they think of, they remember all the bad stuff in there and whatever happened to them as a child. It's not the home that was bad. Like it's not the wood and the walls and the, and the, and the, and the, the carpet and the ceiling. 
It's the people I was inside there that made it bad. So we're not going to tear down the house just because the people I was in there caused harm to us. And it's the same concept with tradition. What we want to see today is how does tradition fit into this whole biblical interpretation thing? Because like I said, you got 38,000 people today with the same constitution. And people, and again, I'm not making any statements. I'm just putting different sides. You can look at that constitution and someone say, women, women, this constitution says keep silent in churches. Another group say, this say they should be pastors in churches. Same constitution. Some look at it and say, baptism is the most important thing in the whole wide world. And it's a real death and new life. And then say, no, 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 baptism is just given as a symbol. We're referring to the same passage. Some look at it and say we should worship on Sunday. Some say worship on Saturday. Same passage in scripture. There has to be a supreme court, an unbiased party who can look back and see what did the original writers mean when they wrote these sentences. And that's what I want to look at here today. Some people say, I don't believe in tradition. I believe in the Bible. I don't believe in tradition. I believe in the Bible. I'm going to prove to you today that you're not allowed to make that statement because it's a contradictory statement. It's like saying, I don't believe in the United States. I believe in Virginia. Okay, what you're going to see is that who makes Virginia, Virginia? The United States. So you cannot believe in Virginia without believing in the United States. What we're going to see today is you cannot believe in the Bible without tradition because the two are linked together. And it's the tradition, which I'll show you by the end, that makes the Bible, that gives the Bible its authority and its weight. Stick with me till the end on that one. Let's start with, let's look at what the Bible has to say about tradition. And I'm going to help you out. I'm I'm, going to take the role of the devil's advocate here. And I'm going to start with the negative on tradition. I'm going to start you off. So I'm going to let you get the first opening statement in in our court here today. No one was tougher on traditions in a negative way than Jesus himself. Mark chapter 7 verse 8 and 13. Jesus said, you... For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Anyone who was against tradition, you can use this passage. You hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. Clear cut. Jesus says, I hate tradition. Especially, you make the word of God of no effect. So Jesus now is separating tradition from the word of God, right? So it seems. Another one. I'll give you another negative. I'm helping you out. I'm making your case for you here if you're on the negative side. Colossians 2, 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So there you go, Father Anthony. Open and shut case. I got words of Jesus. I got words of St. Paul. Both of them saying that word of God and traditions, opposite. And here, tradition of men, not according to Christ. Right? There's two kinds of tradition. There's a good kind and a bad kind. What's the bad kind? What word was repeated in both of these passages? Look here, back to Jesus' verse. You hold the tradition of men. And in St. Paul's, according to the tradition of men. The bad kind of tradition is the tradition of man. What's the tradition of man? What did Jesus mean? What does St. Paul mean? To understand this, you got to go back and understand again. See, like here, this is a perfect example. Sorry, let me just stop right. This is a perfect example. 
of, I can say, traditions of men, I think it means this. And you can run off with your own concept of what does it mean. But until you understand the context in which it was written, you don't have any clue what it means. When Jesus spoke about the traditions of men, no one had any doubt exactly what he was speaking about. Same with St. Paul. Because they knew exactly what it meant. You know what tradition of men meant? Back up now to the Old Testament. Moses. God gave Moses ten commandments. And he gave many, many, many rules. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Don't eat this. Uh, this is how you wash. Many, 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 many rules. And the Pharisees, in order to safeguard these rules as sacred, created other rules to stop you from even getting to breaking these rules. They put speed bumps along the way. Like, for example, Jesus, God said, keep the, holy, the Sabbath the holy, keep holy the Sabbath day. Sabbath, keep it holy. The Pharisees said, because we don't want you to come close to breaking that, then they created something called a Sabbath day's journey. You heard this rule before? And they created a limit. You're only allowed to walk, and they, it was a, a distance. I don't know how far it was. Let's say a half a mile. And they created a rule that said, you're only allowed to walk half a mile on the Sabbath. The rule from God, the command of God was keep it holy. The tradition of men was only 0.5 miles. And they kept it to a T. 0.49999 miles, they would walk it, no problem. Take that last step, and they'd kill you out, kick you out. Same thing, God made rules about what was clean and unclean. What the Pharisees do? They added on many more rules to make sure that you never got to even breaking these rules. So God said, eat this, don't eat this. This is how you eat this. Pharisees said, actually, before you even get there, you wash this, and then you do this. And they had all these rules and traditions which they made up, but they taught it as the tradition of God. So we can't just say tradition is bad. It's not understanding what Jesus meant when he said traditions of men. And as soon as Jesus said traditions of men, traditions of men, everyone knew. Yeah, these Pharisees. God gave us 10 rules. Pharisees added 50 rules to those 10. God gave us these ceremonial rules. Pharisees added 500 rules on top of that. Because that's who the Pharisees were. And they taught their rules as the same rank as God's rules. It's kind of like someone was saying how, like, there's bad words you're not allowed to say. Okay? So... Like, you know the word darn? Okay? Darn is not a bad word. But it's replacing a bad word. So his parents told him, you're not allowed to say darn. He said, why? Because if you say darn, you're one step closer to saying the next one, okay, of mixing the R with an M, okay? So this became a bad word for him. But darn is not a bad word. Darn is not a bad word. Or he wasn't allowed to say geez, because geez is one step close to Jesus. But geez is not a bad word. So if you teach Jesus bad, that's the traditions of men. Do you see where I'm going with this? Is that we teach these rules as the same rank as God's rules, but that's, that's where these Pharisees were, and that's the kind of tradition that Jesus said is bad tradition. So if tradition of man is bad, what's the good kind? Is the traditions of God. Or, said another way, is holy tradition. Holy tradition. What's holy tradition? Holy tradition is the laws of God, the teachings of God that were passed down orally, not necessarily written. Some were written, but the majority were passed down orally, not necessarily in writing in the scriptures. Christianity, this is so important to understand. Christianity is not a philosophy. 
Christianity is not a rule book. Christianity is life. I cannot pass on life in a document. How do I pass my life from me to you? I live with you. And I pass it on through everything that we do. We live together. Christianity is the life of Christ given to us. And much of it was documented. But much more of it was not documented. And that's what I want to show you today. Let's look in the Bible. Let's see what the Bible has to say. St. Paul, who spoke about bad tradition earlier, speaks about good tradition here. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. So right off the bat, you can't say tradition is all bad because here St. Paul says it's good. So you see what I'm saying? You can't just take that verse and say traditions of men bad. Well, the same writer wrote hold the traditions. So you see there's a context involved right here. He says hold on to these traditions that I wrote or that I taught by word. Later on, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Could it be that there are things that God wants to teach to us that are not written in the Bible? Could it be? Is that possible? Let's say hypothetically you say no. Let's make, I'm going to make the argument that no. Everything that we need to know is written in Scripture, and if it's not written in Scripture, let me make that argument. Okay? So then what happened before there was Scripture? When was the first, when was the Bible first compiled as we know it today? Like the Bible was compiled when they said, these are the books of the Bible. Y'all know when the first Bibles was compiled? Fourth century. Fourth century. Fourth century is 400 years. So what did the Christians do for the first 300 years? If there was no Bible. What, they hide in a cave? Just waiting? God, send us a Bible? <laughs> and they're sitting in a cave? And they say, we don't know what to do. Because we don't have any faith. Because the faith is in the Bible. And until we don't have a Bible, so we're just sitting in caves, and then all of a sudden God threw a Bible down from heaven, say, okay, now we can begin to practice Christianity. Is that what happened? If that was the case, then Christianity would be a pretty pathetic, weak religion. But we know that, in fact, those first 300 years were its strongest time. When, as the scripture says, that during that time, the apostles turned the world upside down. And Christianity spread like wildfire. How could it spread like wildfire if it didn't have the Bible? If you say that everything is in the Bible and nothing is outside the Bible, how could it be that the faith spread if everything was in the Bible? The answer is simple. How could it have spread? Because the life was given from person to person, to generation to generation. The life of Christ is not a document. The life of Christ is life to be lived. And it was given from fathers to sons, from sons to their sons, from neighbors to their neighbors, from co-workers to co-workers. The life was given through this concept of tradition, even though it wasn't necessarily in writing. Look here in Acts chapter 2. It says the early church, when the church was strongest, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Not in the words of scripture, but in the apostles' doctrine. We today, when we have questions, we turn to the Bible, which is good. I'm not saying don't do that. That's good. But what did the church do before they could turn to the Bible? Where did they turn for answers? They turned to the church. They turned to the Supreme Court. When they couldn't understand what to do or where to go or which direction. They didn't have a document they referred to. 
They had a body they referred to, and that body is the church. If you try to restrict Christianity to only what is written in the Bible, you're going to find yourself in a heap of trouble. You know why? Again, logic with me here. The Bible is evidence of oral tradition. How? Some of the most famous passages, some of the most important passages of Scripture were written by people who received it orally and not eyewitnesses. You don't believe me? Every one of the four Gospels speaks about the crucifixion of Christ. Matthew wrote about it. Mark wrote about it. Luke wrote about it. John wrote about it. How did Matthew write about it? Was Matthew at the cross of Christ? Was Matthew at the cross of Christ? No. How did he write about it? Somebody told him. And someone told him, and the church, someone who was there told him this is how it happened, and then this was the teaching of the church, and this got passed down, and it got written by Matthew. Other example, tomb of Lazarus. Okay, that's one that's written about very, very clearly. I'm sorry, not the tomb of Lazarus. The, the, escapes me. One of the miracles when the, the miracle of, several of the miracles, okay, were written about, escapes me which one right now. I had it in my head. That's okay. Not the one Lazarus. Lazarus John was actually there. All right. But many of the miracles themselves, oh, here, the resurrection. That's the one I was thinking. <laughs> I know I was thinking tomb. What I, what I, that's got to refer to those. The resurrection itself, Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote about the resurrection. Who was the one who saw the empty tomb? Did Matthew see it? Did Mark see it? How they write about it. How they say there's an angel here and an angel here. How they say the stone was over here. None of them was there. That's tradition. Much of the Bible is given to us is tradition. All of them wrote about the birth of Christ. How was Luke there when the angels was there? And the shepherds? None of those people were there. The Bible itself is a testimony to the importance of tradition. And I'm just going to go through some Bible verses. I'm going to go through them quickly. I can find you 100 verses, but I'm just going to go through quickly. All right, talk about the Bible says you must believe in tradition. Philippians 3.17, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. St. Paul is saying what I wrote to you, but also what I said to you. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2. And, the, and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Didn't say write them down, because... Christianity is not delivered in a document. Christianity is delivered in life. Commit them to people and let the people live it and then let them teach others. Acts 20, 35. Okay, here's a good verse. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you don't believe in tradition, you cannot believe in this verse. You know why? St. Paul is giving a speech here in Acts chapter 20 saying, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Where did Jesus say that? Anyone find me the biblical reference of where Jesus said it? It's not in the Bible. There's nowhere recorded in Scripture that Jesus ever said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So how could it be recorded in Acts that Paul says that's what Jesus said? Paul never even met Jesus. So it's not like even he heard it from Jesus' mouth. Paul didn't ever met Jesus, okay? He never met in the body at least, okay, spiritually. But he never met him. So we can't even say, well, I heard it firsthand. No, you didn't. Someone told you. Luke told you. Or Mark told you, someone else told you, but it's never documented anywhere in Scripture that Jesus wrote down, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm going to give you two verses that if you don't believe in tradition, explain to me these verses. 
Okay, you can't believe in these verses. John 21, 25. This is the last verse of the, of the Gospel according to St. John. After John wrote about miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, he wrote 21 chapters of anything he could remember about Christ. Then finally his arm got tired. He said, I can't write no more. I'm an old man. I'm 100 years old. I need to just die in peace. I'm done writing. So he, he kind of gave the, the summary at the very end, last verse. He said, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying, look, my arm is tired. I'm done writing. Take my word for it. You want to learn more? Go ask your kids or go ask your parents. Let them tell you. I'm done writing. You're telling me that Jesus did this, 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 this in the Gospels. And he did nothing else of any value in the entire world? Do you know, Jesus okay, died at age 33 years old, all right? So his first 30 years, he was kind of working as a carpenter. So forget about the first 30 years. Even though he was the son of God, for sure, a lot of cool stuff happened in those first 30 years. For sure. Forget about those 30 years. His last three years before his death, that's like his public ministry. So I erased the first 30 years. I'm talking about three. Three years. That is approximately, or not approximately, it's exactly 1,095 days. Three years. 365 times three. Okay? 10, 1, 0, 9, 5. Maybe 9, 6 if there's one leap here. Okay? How many of those days of those three years are written about in Scripture? Anyone guess? Like we read about Good Friday. We read about Palm Sunday. We read about what Jesus, the day he uh, healed Lazarus. The day he did the five loaves and two fish. How many separate days are written about in Scripture? Of the 1,095 Days that Jesus did about his public ministry. How many of those? 1095. Answer? 18. 18! 18? So Jesus was around for three years. And these gospels record less than three weeks of his life. And you tell me that the other, someone do the math here for me. 1095 minus 18. 1077. One zero seven seven. That the other one zero seven seven days of his life was just eh, nothing too much happened on those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're gonna take about a, a year and a half off. Okay, we did the walk on water yesterday. Yesterday was a busy day, so we're gonna take this day off. You know, every day with Jesus, like I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you the other verse. Okay, Matthew four twenty three. Every day with Jesus, look, look what this says. This is one one of those eighteen days. It says Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. This is one day. What happened on this one day? It says that Jesus went to all the synagogues. Imagine, uh, imagine, let's make this modern. Jesus went about all of Arlington, all of Alexandria, all of Fairfax County, and he went to all the churches, and he went about teaching and healing. Okay, what did he say? I don't know. It's not written. Nothing important. If it was important, it would be written down. You tell me nothing important happened on these days? Tell me nothing of value Jesus taught? Okay, well, if it's taught, where's it written? It has to be written somewhere. Where's it written? You know where it's written? In the life of his followers. It is written down on the life of his followers. When Jesus did the Great Commission before he ascended to heaven, what did he say? He said, go into all the nations and do what? Make disciples. He didn't say write documents. He said, make disciples. You know what a disciple is? is I don't write down, I give you my life. That's what Jesus did. Jesus made disciples. 
And inside the life of his disciples, he embedded these teachings. So that's why for us, that's my argument. Okay, but I'm going to go, my, I'm going to rebut myself. Don't worry. Okay, that's my argument of why we need tradition and why tradition for us is the safeguard. Because there's many things for us. When I say tradition, when I say we read something in the scripture and we say, okay, I think it means this. And then the church guides us. How? The church, the life of the church, the prayers of the church, the rituals of the church, like the life of the church, the season, like all these things that the church has. The interpretation of the church guides us so that we don't be led astray and we don't end up making up our own mind of what, the, of what this means. And when we don't have the church to guide us, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. Now, you should ask me the question. You should ask me the question. Can I really trust the church? And like I said, if you're thinking this, I don't judge you for one second. I know where you're coming from. You've been burnt. You've had a guy looking like me stand up here like this and abuse the authority that we're given. And stand up here and say, I'm the priest, and therefore it means you do this. And I tell you I want you to do this, and I say, yeah, because I'm the priest, the church says you have to do it. And I apologize on behalf of any priest who's ever done that to you. You don't trust because people like me have made you not trust. And for that, like I said, it's not your fault. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I always say, if you're driving down a road, all right, and you see you're going to fall into a ditch on the left, you say, uh-oh, I don't want to fall into that ditch. So you overcompensate and you fall into the ditch on the right. You, you, no, no benefit. So what happened is some people started to abuse this authority, and the church started to abuse its power. And whatever generation, whatever that was, we need to get into that. Church started to abuse and abuse and abuse. Some people said, all right, church can have that much power. Get rid of the church altogether. I'm saying whether you fall off the right side or the left side, either way, you're in a ditch, man. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. How can I trust things which aren't written clearly in the Bible? Two things that I'll tell you you should trust. Number one. Is we don't trust in man, we trust in God. I'm not saying take my word for it and believe me. I'm saying we trust that the Holy Spirit will lead the church into all truth. We trust that the Holy Spirit will lead the church. What do you mean, Holy Spirit lead the church? Look here, this one I don't need to apologize for. I'm not making this promise. Jesus made this promise. This is not my word saying, no, trust the church because it's a good, I'm not saying it like that at all. I'm saying it doesn't matter what you think about the church. Jesus said this. He said, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. It is not my word. Jesus himself promised. Whether you believe that the Holy Spirit is leading the church, that's up to you. I can't do anything about it, but I can tell you that Jesus promised. And whether or not man is able to fulfill it, the Holy Spirit is able to fulfill it. This promise, okay, when Jesus said, he will guide you, who's you? Again, context. You can't just take a verse and go free willy on your own here and, and take it all, all by yourself. What's he will guide you? Who's you? Who's you he's speaking to? Was he speaking to Peter? Paul? John? Mark? Who's he speaking to? By that time, he was speaking to the group, his apostles. He gathered the 12, okay, and Judas had peaced out by this time, okay. So he gathered his 11, and he said, you guys, 
I'm telling you that the Spirit will lead you. You guys are the church. I've embedded my life into you guys. Earlier today, actually for those of you here during the liturgy, we read a passage from Matthew 23 where Jesus said that call no man on earth father. You know, remember that passage? If I'd have known it was in the reading, I'd have put it up here. Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, for one in heaven is your father. And someone look at that without the proper understanding and say, but then you say, call me Father Anthony. Like, what's wrong with you? Don't you read the Bible? No, you have to understand the context of it. When Jesus was saying that, Jesus took his apostles and said, you guys, don't you call anyone father. I'm giving it to you. You're the fathers. And he was telling them, don't listen to those guys. He said, don't call anyone rabbi. Don't call anyone father. Because those guys will come, the Pharisees, and they'll say, we're your fathers. We're your teachers. He said, no, 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 no. I've given you all the truth. You don't talk to them like that. But then later on, St. Paul talked about how he is a father to many. So we can't take a verse and interpret it just however we want to. We have to interpret it the right way. Jesus made this promise not to an individual. Because for me to say that Jesus promised this to an individual, he will guide you into all truth, is for me to fall into the heresy to say that there's some individual out there that is infallible. Do you believe in that? Do you believe in infallibility of any individual? Well, that if you take this in an individual way, not in the body of Christ kind of a way, then you're saying there's an individual out there who knows all truth. Well, we don't believe that. We believe God knows all truth. And God reveals that truth to the body. That's like, well, like I said, in the early church, they said, we need to circumcise people or not circumcise. Paul said, we don't need to circumcise. Peter said, no, we should circumcise. So what they do? They split. Each one formed their own church. No, they got together. Each one made their argument. And they didn't leave that room until the Holy Spirit made it unanimous. And the Holy Spirit said, no circumcision. You do not need to be Jewish in order to be Christian. And they all left unanimous. That's the concept of the body of Christ. That's the concept of a council. All right? Where people come together and let the Spirit of God guide them. Matthew 16, 18. When the church comes together like that, you know what happens? It says, even the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Not against an individual. The gates of Hades can prevail against an individual. But when the church comes together, he will guide you into all truth, and even the gates of Hades cannot prevail. So that's number one. I trust in the Spirit will lead the church. Even if I don't trust every member of that church, I trust the body will be led by the Spirit of God. Number two, we trust that the Holy Spirit, watch me on this one, who inspired the writing of the Bible as well as the compiling of it. What does that mean? I say to you, this book was written by inspiration of the Spirit. You all say, amen. Like I said, 38,000 denominations, everyone say, written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No one disagrees with that. Okay, I got another question for you. Who put this book together? The Holy Spirit wrote it, and then who put it together? I believe the Holy Spirit put it together. Because you know... We believe, take the New Testament books. Okay, there's 27 books in the New Testament. Gospel, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is that the only four Gospels that were written? There are many Gospels written, and they surface all the time. And there are many books of prophecy that were written, and they surface all the time. So how do we know which ones are legit and which ones are not? How do we know which ones are written by the Holy Spirit and which ones are written not by the Holy Spirit? Like, it wasn't like the Holy Spirit came and said, okay, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, okay, you write a book about this. Okay, go 66 chapters. Jeremiah, you write. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like assignments at the beginning. Matthew, write, focus. It wasn't like that. What it was is that all this stuff happened and people started to write stuff down and write stuff down and write stuff down. 
And it wasn't, like I said, for hundreds of years that they didn't have the Bible compiled, but people just wrote. And then all of a sudden, the church, the teachings, understand this, the teachings were always given orally. But then as the church spread, there became a need to document it more officially because I can teach you and then teach you and then teach you. But as it spreads, things can become like contaminated. So the church said, okay, let's compile all the different sources which we believe are inspired by God. They said, okay, bring the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How about this Thomas gospel? No, no, no. Everyone knows that's not legit. Throw that out. Okay, bring these epistles of St. Paul to Titus, to Philemon. And say, what about this epistle to the... No, no, throw that. that. That's clearly not from St. Paul. That one's junk. Get rid of that stuff. And they compiled it together that way. So how can we accept that the Holy Spirit was writing it if we can't accept that the Holy Spirit was also the one compiling it as well? Because if it wasn't compiled by the Spirit, then if I don't believe this was compiled by the Spirit, then why do I trust what's in it? Why do I trust what's in it? How can I say I believe what this says is the Word of God? Okay, but who put it in there has to be God or else why you trust it. You understand what I'm saying? Bottom line is this. This is my closing argument. Okay, I've always wanted to be a lawyer, in case you can't tell. I decided that people told me too many medical references and they're all off base, so I'm going legal today. Right? I want to be a lawyer. That is my closing argument. Okay, I hope that I've shown you that you cannot say Bible or tradition. You cannot. You cannot say, I believe the Bible, I don't believe in tradition. You can't say it. Because the truth of the matter is, is tradition is not against the Bible. Tradition is the father of the Bible. Tradition is who gave us the Bible. When the Christians wanted to document the scripture, they didn't have to look far to say, do we believe in this book of Isaiah? Do we believe in that book of Jeremiah? Yes. Why? Because it had been passed down from generation to generation. The word tradition, like the literal word tradition, has a beautiful meaning. It literally means to pass on like a baton. You know in a relay race, okay, as you pass on a baton? That's what the word tradition literally means. And when we talk about tradition, we don't talk about ideas or opinions or what I think, or what you think, or let's come up with. We don't come up with any of that stuff. We like, it's like the Supreme Court. The job of the church and the tradition is to go back to the original writers, figure out what they meant, and then once we have figured out what they meant, it is given to me, and my job is to take this baton, not to add or subtract to it, but just do my best to keep it, and then give it to the next guy to carry on. And that's what tradition is all about. And if you don't believe in tradition, it's hard for me to understand how you can believe in the Bible at all. Christianity is not a belief. It is a life. And it is a life that Jesus embedded inside his church, which is his body on earth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus never wrote anything while he was on this earth. He never wrote a document. He never sent a text message or an email. But what he did, you know what Jesus did? He healed people's hearts. He comforted people's spirits. 
He put himself inside the hearts of his believers. And then he sent his spirit to dwell amongst them and to dwell inside them and to live with them forever. So where am I looking to as the source of my teachings about the life in Christ? I'm looking to the lives and the hearts of those believers who were there and have it embedded inside them. I hope when we, like I wanted our, our takeaway from this series, that we realize that we need to invest more into this word of God. What we talked about in the beginning is this is the word for our spirits. But we never take it in a, in a, in a vacuum by itself and think that the Bible, like that we worship, remember I said we don't worship the Bible. We worship who the Bible writes about. We don't worship the paper and the ink. We revere the paper and the ink and we honor it because it's like a love letter to me of someone who is very far away. The letter is nothing. Once I see the person, I don't need the letter. I have a hug the person. But until I have the person, I hug those letters. But it's not the letters. It's not the letters. The Bible is what gives us everything we need to know about God. I shouldn't say everything. The Bible is what gives us our, that connection to God. But we need to put it in the proper context so that we can have a complete life in Christ. You cannot have that complete life in Christ away from the body of Christ, which is the church of God. Okay? Let's stand up and say a prayer together. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've given to us. We thank you for your word, which is given to us. And we thank you for your house, your body, which you have invited us to be part of. Lord, we don't, fully understand what it means that that the church is your body on earth but we know lord that like the honor that's been given to us to be part of your body is something that we're not worthy of that you would have like peter and paul and matthew and mark and then you would insert us into the same lineup and have us stand in the same place and be part of that same body we don't understand what it means lord but we pray that you'd help us to, to like really appreciate and to make the most of your house your body which is which is the church and you'd help us to to invest more in our relationship with the church to understand the life that you have meant for us we pray for every single person who's here that you deepen our relationship with you during these coming weeks as we approach holy week and easter and, and you'd help us to deepen our relationship with you in a new way during this time we pray this in the name of your son with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints hear us as we pray thankfully our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Just a quick reminder, remember, we're, the, the well will be canceled the next two weeks because we got Palm Sunday and Easter. All right, but then if um, we'll be back the week after that, okay? So hopefully we'll see you all throughout the coming weeks, but the well will be canceled in the next two weeks. Have a great week.